Western leaders gather at NATO headquarters to talk next steps as Russia's war on Ukraine enters month two. Up to 40,000 Russian troops may have been killed, wounded, taken prisoner, or missing in just one month. Meantime, the U.S. officially accuses Vladimir Putin of war crimes. And here at home, confirmation hearings for what could be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports from Washington. It's Friday, March 25th. United States is not officially at war with Russia, nor is NATO, the U.S.-led North Atlantic Military Alliance, but the West is funneling tons of weapons and other aid to Ukraine, which has now been fending off the Russian invasion for a month. President Biden went to NATO headquarters in Belgium to discuss the next phase of the war with American allies. He said that everything Putin was hoping to achieve with his invasion has backfired thanks to crushing sanctions, the reinvigorated Western alliance, and all the rest, plus a stout, determined Ukrainian determination to drive the invaders out. The Brussels summit was to discuss next steps, which the president outlined. The United States is committed to provide over $2 billion in military equipment to Ukraine since I became president, anti-air systems, anti-armor systems, ammunition, and our weapons are flowing into Ukraine as I speak. And today, I'm announcing the United States is prepared to commit more than $1 billion in humanitarian assistance to help get relief to millions of Ukrainians affected by the war in Ukraine. Many Ukrainian refugees will, uh, will wish to stay in Europe, closer to their homes. But we've also will welcome 100,000 Ukrainians to the United States with a focus on reuniting families. And we will invest $320 million to bolster democratic resilience and defend human rights in Ukraine and neighboring countries. We're also coordinating with the G7 and the European Union on food security as well as energy security. And I'll have more to say about that tomorrow. We're also announcing new sanctions of more than 400 individuals and entities aligned with, in alignment with the European Union. More than 300 members of the Duma, oligarchs, and Russian defense companies that fuel the Russian war machine. In addition to the 100,000 U.S. forces now stationed in Europe to defend NATO territory, NATO established, as you already know, four new battle groups in Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria and Slovakia to reinforce the Eastern Front. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine.
Now, one danger here, President Biden and others are worried that a desperate Putin may try and use chemical or biological weapons, perhaps even tactical nuclear weapons. The president was asked about part of that. So you've warned about the real threat of chemical weapons being used. Have you gathered specific intelligence that suggests that President Putin is deploying these weapons, moving them to position or considering their use? And would the U.S. or NATO respond with military action if he did use chemical weapons? You know, on the first question, I can't answer that. I'm not going to give you intelligence data, number one. Number two, we would respond. We would respond if he uses it. The nature of the response would depend on the nature of the use. That kind of ambiguity is designed to keep Putin guessing. NATO leaders also heard from Ukrainian President Zelensky, who pleaded again for more weapons to take on the Russian invaders. He said the worst thing is not having clear answers from NATO countries about weapons that he needs. NATO has 20,000 tanks, he says. Well, he just needs 200. Either give them or sell them to us, he pleads. He adds, quote, we have shown what our standards are and what we are capable of. Indeed, he has. Meantime, what about Putin himself? Well, the U.S. now accuses his forces of committing war crimes. Based on information that is currently available, The U.S. government assesses that Russia's forces are committing war crimes in Ukraine. I wanted to provide you with some additional information uh, underlying this assessment. We have all seen really horrific uh, images and accounts from the extensive and unrelenting attacks on civilians and civilian sites being conducted by Russian forces in Ukraine. There have been numerous credible reports of hospitals, schools, theaters, etc., being intentionally attacked, as well as indiscriminate attacks. Russia's forces have destroyed apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, other elements of the critical civilian infrastructure. We've been shocked by images of Russian forces and strikes hitting civilian sites in Mariupol, including the maternity hospital, a museum, and an art school. The United Nations and other credible observers have confirmed hundreds of civilian deaths, and we believe that the the exact civilian death toll will be in the thousands. Last week, Secretary Blinken expressed his view that some of Russians' reported attacks did in fact constitute war crimes. That's Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice Ben Venshak at a State Department briefing. And what's going on in Moscow itself? Well, analyzing Russia has always been difficult. No less a figure than Winston Churchill said, quote, Kremlin political intrigues are comparable to a bulldog fight under a rug. An outsider only hears the growling, and when he sees the bones fly out from beneath, it is obvious who won. That quote is relevant today because there are growing questions about just how secure Putin's grip on power is. There have been Western reports of grumbling, anger, disarray in the Russian military and intelligence services. Verifying any of this, of course, is next to impossible. What is believed, though, is that Putin, who is angry that the war has not gone according to plan, has sacked several generals. U.S. officials also believe that at least one senior Russian intelligence official is under house arrest and that there has been bickering 
between Russian intelligence and defense officials. Remember, American intelligence in the run-up to the war was excellent, and this is what those or other U.S. officials are now saying. Cutting through this fog of war even further, Russia may have lost up to 40,000 troops, either killed, wounded, taken prisoner, or missing in just one month. At least that's what one senior military official from NATO tells the Wall Street Journal. Meantime, and for reasons not known, the Russians have been communicating in the open at times, allowing others to eavesdrop and interfere. The New York Times, in an incredible piece of journalism, posted an amazing presentation on those intercepts. Here's just one portion. It's not clear why some Russian military units are using unencrypted frequencies. But what it means is that people with access to a radio receiver can listen in and record their conversations. Or interfere. Did you hear that? Let's hear that again. A Russian soldier says he didn't understand something and asks whoever he's talking to to repeat it. But then someone whistling Dixie interferes. That's how you win wars, listen in on the enemy, interfere, disrupt any way you can. Other parts of what the Times verified and posted reveal what it calls an army struggling with logistical problems and communication failures. That's putting it mildly. Ancillary to all of this is China. NATO is urging Beijing not to help Russia with weapons or anything else and to stop amplifying what British Prime Minister Boris Johnson calls, quote, the Kremlin's false narratives about the war. I have a better way of saying false narratives. They're actually bald-faced lies. That's what the Russians are telling. And it's not like the war is the only problem on the global stage. North Korea has fired an intercontinental ballistic missile into the Sea of Japan, rolling out technology that appears capable of reaching the United States. Yes, Japan's defense ministry said a new type of ICBM reached an altitude of close to 4,000 miles before crashing in waters west of Japan. The missile was in the air for about 70 minutes, flying a distance of about 700 miles. The launch occurred while President Biden was in Europe for a round of summits, starting with NATO leaders on the Ukraine crisis. Speaking from Brussels, where the Group of Seven is also gathering, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida called the ICBM launch reckless and unacceptable. He said that additional sanctions on Pyongyang and coordination with the U.S. and South Korea were on the table. The missile was launched from North Korea's east coast. The provocation marks the first time North Korea has tested a banned ICBM since 2017. It caps an unusual upsurge in missile testing this year as Pyongyang prepares to mark the 110th anniversary of the birth of founder Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of current leader Kim Jong-un. Today's launch signals the end of North Korea's moratorium on nuclear and ICBM testing as the isolated nation seeks to pressure Washington back to the negotiating table. That's CBS News correspondent Lucy Kraft in Tokyo. 
Well, here at home, one big story this week, confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She explained how she works as a judge. And so what I do um, is I essentially follow three steps. The first step is when I get a case, I ensure that I am proceeding from a position of neutrality. Um, this means that, you know, you, you, you get a case and it's about something and it's submitted by certain parties. I am clearing my mind of any preconceived notions about how the case might come out. I'm setting aside any personal views. Uh, it's very important that judges rule without fear or favor. The second step is once I've um, cleared the decks, so to speak, in this way, um, I am able to receive all of the appropriate inputs for the case. Um, that is the party's arguments. They've written briefs. Um, sometimes we have a hearing. Sometimes we hear from other parties, amici in a case. And then there's the factual record. I am evaluating all of the facts from various perspectives. I think my experience, uh, all of the various experiences that I've had, really helps me uh, at this stage to see the perspectives of all of the parties and to understand their arguments. And then the third step is the interpretation and application of the law to the facts in the case. As usual, the hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee broke down along partisan lines. Democrats praised her, but Republicans asked whether she was soft on crime. It was pointed out, however, that Jackson has been endorsed by the biggest organization of rank-and-file police officers in the country. Republicans also suggested that she was too soft on cases involving child pornography. Here are some facts pro and con about that. In many child porn cases, Jackson imposed sentences beyond what prosecutors requested and in others less. The data shows that judges appointed by former President Trump have done the very same thing. And according to a 2020 U.S. Sentencing Commission report, less than 30% of non-production child porn offenders received a sentence within the guideline range. So what happens next? Jackson will be approved by the Judiciary Committee, but final confirmation in the full Senate, which is divided 50-50, could be close. Other news this week, a pain in the gas. AAA says the average cost of a gallon of regular, now 4.23 nationwide. That's up about 70 cents since Russia invaded Ukraine. Some states are talking about possible rebates for consumers. September 1969, that's the last time the number of Americans filing for first-time unemployment benefits was as low as it was last week. In real terms, it's even lower when you consider that the U.S. population is about 60% bigger than it was way back in 1969. And don't think we're out of the woods on COVID. Not yet a new variant. This one's called the BA2, is gathering steam. The good news here, though, 75% of adults are now vaccinated, and Moderna is asking the FDA to approve a vaccine it claims is partially effective, as in 44% effective for kids less than six years old.
Now let's hear about another Evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. Time now to open up the West Ring Report's archives and see what made history this week in the past. The first movie ever shown in the White House in 1915 landed Woodrow Wilson in hot water. It was D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, a look at the Ku Klux Klan. 1933, Franklin Roosevelt legalized the sale of beer and wine, a sign that prohibition was coming to an end. Legalizing beer and wine also helped the feds raise badly needed revenue during the Depression. Prohibition itself came to an end later that year. Reminds me of that last line in one of my favorite movies, The Untouchables, when a reporter asked Kevin Costner, also known as Elliot Ness, this question. Uh, they, they say they're going to repeal prohibition. What will you do then? I think I'll have a drink. Speaking of FDR, by the way, did you know he used to host White House cocktail parties, playing bartender and mixing drinks for his guests? Roosevelt also drank during card games, and if he lost, he paid by check, knowing that the checks would be kept as souvenirs and never cashed. One more history. Check out my books on Amazon. I'll sign them for you, too. Just shoot me an email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. And need a speaker for your event? I do that, too. Current events, economics, analysis, history. I connect the dots and would love to hear from you. Speaking of books, by the way, I'll send you one if you download my new app. It's called West Wing Reports, available in the Apple and Android stores. Just download it on your phone or tablet. There's a button called What's on Your Mind. All you do is push, talk, and send. That's it. Leave a comment, and your name goes into a drawing for any of my books, your choice. Well, that's it for this week. Here's my email again, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to C-SPAN and CBS for the audio clips. Our producer, sound designer, and engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman. Executive producer is Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis in Washington. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.